I feel like a lot of people would say that you have something that's actually the hardest part. I wouldn't say it's like good taste. I would say it's more like I have a non-neurotypical, slightly eccentric, divergent mind that operates way outside of normal conventional reality. <laughs> Maybe give us an introduction of where we are right now. We are in the man cave. <laughs> uh, this is my garage here in the South Bay, Southern California. A converted space for the sake of efficient work. Yeah. Well, I can still have a door where my kids can knock on it, my wife can knock on it, and you said access. you said earlier not to read all the books on the sh on the shelf here. What? Why was that? Every once in a while, like if I have a friend over, I'll notice them side-eyeing the kind of books, trying to figure out like, who is this dude? Okay, he's read that, he's read that. Oh no, he's read that. Oh no, there's a picture of this. Oh, you yeah. know. So <laughs> it's just, the, I collect the books because um, it's like a gamut of my, I would just say my, my explorations last, gosh, it was like 25 years. Yeah. Elliot, do you remember the first time we ever met? I want to say... Are we talking Houston, Texas? Yes. No, Austin. Austin. Yep. It's a funny story. Can I tell you? Can I remind you? Please. So I was working at Music Bed at the time, which is funny, full circle. Uh, and we were interviewing you for some video. I can't remember what, mm. but we were interviewing you and like Philip Bloom and like Shane Hurlbutt or something. Everybody was at Masters in Motion. Uh, remember? Yes. You, you did a talk that was very beautiful at Masters in Motion made Daniel cry, which is another story. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. We had this interview and I had like really admired your work, obviously like young filmmaker sort of just starting out. So I was like really looking forward to this interview. Uh, <laughs> I'm scared. Uh -oh. And I walked, we, we got some like warehouse space or something. And right before we went to the, to set up, we had this Thai food that was, uh, and Thai food just like does not agree with me. So I like went to the bathroom right before our interview. <laughs> Did it seep out into the interview? And you, well, okay. you came in right, like right when I was coming out, like door shuts, bathroom. I'm like, and then you're standing there. You just came into the, to the interview and you were like, Hey man, my name's Elliot. And then you go right into the bathroom, like right after me. Very disgusting story to start this off, but I love it. you come out and you like sit down in the interview chair and whatever. And uh, you just like, look at me <laughs> you just like look at me and you're like did you just use that bathroom <laughs> no way yeah. i called you out yeah you oh, called no. me. <laughs> did you lie no i said yeah i'm sorry dude and you're like that was terrible <laughs> that was terrible yeah. oh no i shamed you in front of your whole crew and everything yeah oh no <laughs> i could have been more discreet no it was funny though i think i think in, at the time i was like frick man like now i have to like do like a very serious interview with this guy and he just called me out. I feel like, but it turned out to be funny. It was like, I probably did it to relieve my own anxiety. Sure. <laughs> my, my wife's recently told me I, I've got to stop doing that. I can sort of throw like small little grenades into see, yeah. serious conversations Yeah. because like if I'm with people and it, people are either taking themselves too seriously or right. it's too sophisticated, I'll just do something a little tricky. I feel like you got to diffuse it somehow. Yeah. But it's, I, I'm trying to work on it because it's usually like it's like sweeping someone's leg. You know, yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like passive aggressive, sarcastic, something like right. taking a poke. Yeah. But it's always been my way of like humanizing the um, the exchange. Yeah. So it's probably love. No, I fucking love for sure. 
I was just, it was the, it was like the highlight of my day that I was like waiting for it. And then I was like, I, but, but you've got to think I grew in greater intimacy with you though. Exactly. Because of it. I felt, I felt like we were better friends after that for sure. A deeper connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we've gone on to, to hang out many times. Obviously I've gotten to know you over the years, but I don't think I've ever gotten the story of where you like started. I know you were kind of like an editor mm. in an agency maybe, but like, could you like go back and just like give me sort of that cliff notes version of your, your upbringing into the film industry? Yeah. So always an artist, pen and ink in a sketchbook, traumatized by life, did not know vocationally how I would survive, came from like lower working class family uh, in the burbs. And they were both starving artists. Pops took a job at the refinery. And I think they were um, always, you know, in sort of financial turmoil, trying to just get me out the door. They knew I was gifted as an artist. I would do these incredible face renderings. Like when I was very young, I would just draw people's faces all day long. And I remember my dad, my dad was a prolific artist. And so is my mom still to this day. But they're like, oh God, he's touched. Yeah. You know, and... Um, in high school, I ended up taking, uh, I went from like hypersensitive, like scared little artist kid to like, oh, I'm sort of around really, I'd say like tough competitive culture. Mm. And so I, I think I resurrected some strange longing for um, like football, martial arts. Mm -hmm. And in high school was still drawing privately and in arts, art classes was like, really um i was loved by the teachers but it was like it's a kind of private thing yeah and uh it's a long this is a long winded way of, of getting to the story but uh it was in college where i was just trying to survive financially i was like uh working a different assortment assortment of different jobs and i was delivering food for a mediterranean restaurant um I was doing this computer sales job and just failing miserably on the phones, trying to sell laptops. Just like, you know, I was a mumbling kid. I was yeah. eccentric. I was like, you want to buy a laptop, you know, and just like, <laughs> just failing. And I remember this guy uh, in this real weird fringe uh, shop that we were working in handed me a book. It was like Dale, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Okay. Yeah, yeah I know. it. Yeah. And it was just like how to ask great questions. Yeah. Get people um, talking about themselves. And I remember my typography teacher at Cal State Long Beach. Again, I'm an artist. I'm just figuring out, man, I gotta like figure out how to make money. I got really interested in him. And I was like playing around with this idea and the rest of the class was trying to pass. And I'm like, hey man, how do you, how do you balance art and commerce? And like, where do you work outside of here? Do you have a job? You know, just asking him tons of questions. And I remember him, um, I think he like felt really seen and known in a very unique way. And he's like, God, Ellie, you know, I love the questions you ask and how interested you are in my world. I'd love to give you an internship. Wow. And so the internship uh, happened like, I would say mid-college and it was at Ogilvy and Mather, which was an advertising agency. And they had a post-production facility there. And the internship was a three month internship in their tape vault. So I was making three quarter inch tape dubs um, mm. for different producers that were running around the agency trying to put together director's reels. And uh, simultaneously Final Cut had just launched and part of making these sizzle reels was like to learn Final Cut. So I was learning Final Cut um, on my own dime, working there for free, learning from the AV department uh, and 
this whole other world was sort of like opening up. And uh, at three months, uh, th- three months after the internship started, they said, "Hey, you know, you're you got to go back to school and finish school. We can't hire you." And I remember saying, like, I'm not going to leave. You know, I'm going to stay here until you kick me out. Because right. I love it here so much. And um, long story short, they ended up firing the gentleman that hired me that had been there for 10 years and gave me his position. And uh, for thereafter, like for about a year after, I was um, working there full time. Can you recognize now why they did that, perhaps? Why they fired the gentleman? And gave you the job? I think I was impassioned and really hungry yeah i was almost i think as a recovering alcoholic and addict when i look back i was almost like this um if you looked at my life like i would wake up at 6 a.m in the morning i would start at santa monica city college doing classes in the morning i would go to culver city to do this internship which turned into a job then i would drive down to long beach which is an hour drive in traffic to finish night school and then i would head up to glendora to be with this girl that i was dating to sleep with her uh, until 1 a.m. and then start start over the next day, and I think I think part of my is you call it my ism, my spiritual malady, was like um, an in, like an insatiable dry like I don't know how to explain Just it. Just hungry, like, yeah. Super hungry, yeah. Yeah, like scary hungry, and I think that I think that um, that knocked down a Do lot of doors. Do you think at that time, like you even saw any th- version of what you're doing now? You know what I'm saying? Um, well, what's crazy, you know, as, as, as that started developing, the love for editorial, uh, and so I'm in Final Cut, I'm learning it, I'm starting to do Friends music videos almost immediately because I was connected with a lot of the punk bands here in the South Bay. Um, what I reflected on, and it like hit me almost like as a prophetic uh, revelation, was that early on, when I was very young, my father always had like an RCA camera. Mm-hmm. And he was filming everything in our childhood. But at some point when I was like three or four, I started turning to him and telling him where to point the camera. (laughs) And so we have these videos that I ended up finding where we'd be in the backyard and I was making films as a director using him as a camera operator. (laughs) So it was almost like maybe written into the script of my life. And I had never even realized it to be an option. I assumed I would just be a graphic designer or like a struggling artist. Right. Um, so it was always there. Yeah. You know, I just, I just didn't have the tools. I didn't have the teachers and I didn't have the wherewithal. So that, that job got you basically to a point where like you were just making a lot, like not, not financially, but just a lot of, a lot of things at that point. Right. Yeah. I would just say experimenting as an editor opened up, you know, opportunities to just sort of, it was like a new, I would say almost like a new tool as an artist to just play. Um, and I was trying, I was trying hard to get out of, out of, out of college to get into that further into that realm. Yeah. Did the last minutes in Odin come within that time or was it coming out of that time or when, when, when did that happen? No, the crazy thing is, you know, I, I, I would say I almost had like a very private, um, filmmakers journey before last minutes with Odin because, uh, gosh, thereafter, you know, as an editor, um, I started like doing my own films. I remember, working freelance editorial for fuel TV and these action sports networks. And I started getting opportunities to do like documentary stuff and pick up a camera on my own. And it was a very happenstance situation where a friend was like, Hey, I've got this DSLR camera that's brand new to the market. Do you want to use it this weekend on anything? And then my friend Jason Wood called me, who was a beloved friend who's like saved my life. And he said, Hey, 
I'm putting my dog down this weekend. Can you come be with me? And I thought, ah, I can serve both of my friends here in this opportunity. And hey, Matt Taylor, do you want to come film this this weekend? And uh, yeah, we went and filmed it Saturday. Uh, in a couple hours, I cut it together that night, sent it to my mom and sent it to Jason. You know, stole a Bonnie Vare track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And then I woke up and it was, you know, it had been watched like a hundred thousand times and uh, did it feel like something when you, when you woke up that morning? Like, was it, was it kind of, obviously it's a little bit of a shock, but I mean, what was your reaction to that? Yeah. I cried hysterically. You know, I, I'm someone that I think, uh, most of the time when I'm making films or I'm investigating something, I'm trying to have a cathartic release for myself because most of the time I'm very numb, um, and I'm emotionally detached. So I remember just having this like, intense cry that lasted us i finished the cut it was a very transcendent experience it did not feel like i was even editing the thing it was complete i watched it down and i'm like this is way beyond me i cried hysterically it was super healing those are always uh, there's very few times in my career that but i have experienced something like that where you do finish something you're like i wasn't even there yeah like how have you sort of learned or tried to chase that dragon in some way like are there things that you've implemented into your process to get closer to that in some way yeah yeah i think so i think the one thing that was um um like when i got sober i crashed my car in a blackout it was 23 some friend recommended a therapist that recommended a 12 step meeting. I was sitting in that 12 step meeting, not realizing that that first 12 step meeting for me was 10 feet away from where I crashed my car. Oh, like wow. just very strange. Yeah. You call it synchronicity. Yeah. Um, I began to understand like life just worked that way. And I trusted it more than mastery or talent. So I had enough intuition. And I think I had enough um, just natural ability as a filmmaker or an art as, or as an artist. And then the rest of the opportunity, I just believed came through happenstance. Yeah. I just had to keep going after the, the things I intuitively felt connected to and everything else would coalesce. And that really worked. I mean, like really worked for me. And I think what happened was this very strange season where many of my films were winning awards. It was just, it came very easy and there was a freedom to it. But then, you know, the, the masters of the art started like knocking on my door and like Alejandro Naratu, you know, calls my cell phone randomly one day and is like, Hey, I want to execute and produce your first feature. Give me your script. Like I'm going on with these first, these first, um, meetings. I have an agent. I'm like, people are asking like, where's the script? Where's, where's the mastery, you know? And then privately I was like, Oh shit. I don't, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> my life is a big accident. Um, and so there was a season where I think I like doubled down on, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm not really a filmmaker. I'm not a cinephile. And uh, I have to prove that to people that I am if I'm going to exist in this space. So I got all the books, yeah, you know, all the master classes, like uh, just started teaching myself screenwriting, just trying so hard to ensure that I had a vernacular and I had a, a talent that would match the opportunity that, um, that I was experiencing. Um, do you regret that at all? No, I think, I think it was a hard season because I think what it did was that it put me into a state of fear. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think, 
it was essential. I had to kind of grow up and become adult and realize that there is actually real fundamental skill and, and a tool set that I had to learn right. if I wanted uh, a sustainable career. So I, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that I had the gumption to go after it and actually learn all of it. Looking back though, I, I don't think I did it in a place of like love or freedom. It was like, oh shit, I have to catch up quick. Like I'm an outsider here. I'm an outsider, yes. You got it. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people would say that you have something that's actually the hardest part. You know what I'm saying? Like even early on, coming from your childhood, like the technical stuff is almost the easier, easier part to learn because mm. it's something that's, you can write it down. You could get on a set and learn things. But the hardest thing is that like real subtextual sort of how do I present humanity mm. without sort of being contrived? So I think what, what I've been given is, um, I wouldn't say it's like good taste. I would say it's more like I have a non-neurotypical, slightly eccentric, divergent mind that operates way outside of normal conventional reality. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's what God gave me. Yeah. It's the way I see the world. And I think like my process and my intuition is so foolish in the eyes of like rational thinking. That piece of me is my art. It is my greatness. But I think pressed up against the expectations others have of me or pressed up against like the rigidity of the craft or the rigidity of, um, or the specificity that's required to accomplish things. Right. Many times I don't have the capacity or the um, the ability to like honor that. Yeah, and that 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 duality between like um, so more logical, rational, you know, pragmatic mind and the more eccentric, intuitive nature is always this like crazy balance. Yeah, you know. Do you feel like being an outsider has kind of been a through line through all of your work? You know, it's funny in the rooms of recovery, that's like our main spiritual malady that we feel like aliens on earth, you know, like we never belong. We don't belong that. Um, I mean, I remember my earliest memories always being the watcher, you know, all the kids were playing, right? but I had my headphones in. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And I was, I'd be listening to music and I'd be watching them, observing them and studying them. And I think, you know, the more I've become a writer also, writers are the same way. They love to observe and they love to watch. And I think um, it's this crazy paradox because I long to be on the inside. I long to be yeah. connected. I want to be a feel a part of. And there is work that I can do to actually feel, I think, more intimate with other people. It's where I'm heading, I think, in my life now. I really do want to feel um, like I belong. And I've, I've experienced a lot of that. Uh, I think I've done a lot of work to get to a place where I'm like, wow in any given situation, I feel like I totally belong. Yeah, I think where I've taken that, um, again, that sort of divergent outsider nature of mine is now I, I know that I love, I love to be the watcher and the observer. I love to be the one asking questions Yeah, and the one, uh, studying other people's lives. And, uh, why is that? Cause I'm the exact same way. And I, I, I feel I felt like an outsider my whole life. And it, I, I think you put it the right way. It's like, just, I like, I enjoy watching. Yeah. I don't like to be in the center of anything. Yeah. Like I like to disappear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, uh, 
I'd be curious to see, do you, do you feel like it's a um, part of your spiritual malady? Like, are you trying to fix that? Or have you accepted that as just your nature? No, I've definitely accepted it as eccentricness. Or, Eccentric, yeah. Yeah, which I feel like does sort of give me the other abilities to observe. And like you said, and, and sort of almost write or create sort of an impression of humanity that's interesting. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And I think I, I see that in all your work. I think that's why you're a great filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I think you ask wonderful questions, but I think also like your, your essence, um, you hold a very like compassionate, um, great grace filled like presence. If I were to like therapize you, I'd probably say when you were young, you were very hypersensitive and very gentle and, um, you know, easily, you'd easily cry and feel things immensely. Yes. You know, I would cry a lot, very sensitive, still am. Yeah. But definitely feel like I try and find how not to just like kind of numb things out yes. so much, you know? Yes. Because I do miss feeling that stuff so hard sometimes. Brother, I would say the first chance I had to create some kind of buffer or numbness between myself and the world. Mm. I just started working it. Cause I'm like, I just feel way too much all the time. It's yeah. overwhelming. I hear too much. I see too much. And, um, you know, I think that when I was young, like my suicidal ideation or, you know, my massive panic attacks were always related to this experience of just being like overwhelmed by life yeah other kids were like oh hey we're gonna go to mcdonald's <laughs> and like the questions and the feelings and everything that were that was just a wash over me was just so intense all the time yeah you know i i do i i'm the more i grow into who I, i'm only 31 now so i'm not i'm not there yet i don't feel like but the more i'm starting to cherish how hard i feel things yes you know what i mean but now it's like I, I I cherish it more that it, because I think it makes it it is sort of a superpower sometimes it is you know if you can keep it under some wraps you know I always have these crazy moments where um, I've been in such a disassociated state because I've had to get through some real gnarly trauma or something or like get through a really like heavy intense season and I'll go numb and I'll lose some of my hearing and I'll lose some of my smell and taste whoa physiologically my it's body's all, going numb yeah my lower back's kind of going out and what will happen is i'll have something will come across my periphery un, in a very unexpected way and i'll have a cathartic release and i'll just start like weeping for all the tears i haven't cried six months previous right. and what will happen is my ears will actually pop open no way. and all my sense of smell will come back and it's as if i go from like a one-dimensional reality to like everything being technicolor yeah and uh wow. feeling connected to everything all at once you know i remember when our our child was born with special needs and it just ripped me down the center like completely broke me open my wife included i remember looking at her as we were both crying through it and thinking i told her I said, this is the closest i've ever felt to you and she said i feel the same i've never been more in love with you and i went to starbucks to um to get her coffee one morning and i remember i was so cracked open that i was sitting in that starbucks line and there were like 12 people and i knew every single individual's pain that they were carrying into that starbucks mm. now this is like weird paranormal stuff sure 
but it was almost like a sixth sense because I had no like egoic guard. I was like one with other people's suffering. I don't know if that's woo woo, but um, it's kind of like I'm just to make a movie analogy, like in Unbreakable, where Bruce Willis is like bumping into people yeah. and he like sees these like flashes of uh, exactly, yeah, yeah, crimes that they've committed. <laughs> yeah, and I and I but, and I think this is the you know it's the cursing and blessing the blessing of an empath or someone that's deeply intuitive. You just like, what was it like, sort of, you know? And we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but. Was it like sort of managing work while your son was come, being born and discovering what was going on with him? Yeah, I mean, it for a year before my son was born, I worked with a woman um, who took me to like the depths of uh, all of that, and I had a mental breakdown that lasted, I would say, like four months. I had a panic attack that kicked off at the at the core of the work we were doing, and lasted like four months. I lost like thirty pounds. Like a single panic attack? Imagine what? being in a state of panic for like three months. And I understand why people commit suicide. I really do. Because it's like, oh, this is never going to change. But what I, what she was able to frame, which was the most powerful thing, is she's like, you've always been running from your fear. Your panic is the fear of fear. Mm. And until you get to the center of this, and a lot of it also was like, I had a disordered attachment with my mother, a real codependent relationship with my mother. And I had to cleave from that relationship and, you know, and be with myself for the first time without having external, like, external codependent dynamics. Yeah. But um, walking through it with her guide, she was like, we can medicate you or you can walk through this, get to the other side and be completely transformed. Mm. Right. And what happened was that, and, our, you know, it felt like I was in a free fall, like dying every day like such a hard thing to comprehend, but rooted in the sense that I was doing it for the sake of going all the way through yeah. the fear that I had never fully been with getting as close to it as I possibly can to know that I wouldn't die. Yeah. And, um, and came out of that, uh, really healed. And I think for me, it was a lot of traumas. Like I sure. dealt with a lot of stuff in my childhood that I'd never touched. Yeah. A lot of fear that I'd just always ran from. My workaholism, everything was sort of like, if I ever got into a meditative state, there was always this buzz underneath, yeah. which was like, I'm too scared to fully surrender or like let right, go. Right. And at the end of that, I was able to fully let go. And I remember laying on, laying on my back in the backyard and having this big exhale. And uh, I, I was praying through it, but I said, God, I'm, uh, I'm done. I'm good. I, like, I completely surrender. And it was as if uh, I was like reborn. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are doing that, you know, through DMT or ayahuasca. They're trying to kind of different like quick ways, Sure. you know, but um, it's the ex excavation of the, uh, the terror that lies mm -hmm. in the heart, you know? Yeah. It's terrifying. It is. Gosh, I can't imagine dude, the, a four month version of that. But, get, but getting back to your, Anxiety question, questions always, I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it's not going too far. Um, uh, working when my son had special needs, what I can say is that uh, for many years thereafter, and I'm still kind of coming out of it, he's six years old, but I think it just clarified purpose. 
And what it did is it drew me to the details of my own life. I think I was making films and escaping the domestic realm of attention. You know, I was like making films about paying attention or, you know, making films about love. But I think what it did was it, um, I remember there was a social psychologist that came over to work with our son because he was pulling adults into different rooms. Mm -hmm. And she said, I know exactly what the problem already is. You know, I know that it's the fact that uh, you're in the room, but you're not really in the room. You're somewhere else. And that way you're showing up is actually creating a feeling that you, that your son believes you don't want to be with him. Mm -hmm. And I turned to my wife and I said, uh, is that how I'm showing up? I'm here all the time physically. She said, yeah, most times you're not fully present. You're somewhere else in your head and it's a devastating feeling. And so the woman was like, well, where are you? And I was like, oh, that's interesting. In my mind, as I'm attempting to be a good dad and be present with my family, I'm creating my films, mm-hmm. right? I'm creating my films about, or I'm studying the thing that ultimately is going to help my film but I'm never in total contact with the people that I actually love. And this yeah. goes back to the question about being outsider. Yep. So she, I mean, she came, I think from more a secular standpoint, she's like, you know, you just need to be with your son for 15 minutes a day, go where he goes, be with him, watch his breathing, watch his eyes, be fully mindful with him. And that will satiate him and make him feel like his father's actually seeing him and wanting to be with him, yeah. that he won't be doing this weird, this weird thing. And that changed the behavior completely. But I think what it did more than anything for me was um, in regards to my filmmaking and my career, I realized I I wanted to do a lot more living than creating. You know, I wanted to get into the details of my family's life. I wanted to double down on the relationships that I had and get much closer in attention and in presence with, with people that I love. And so I would say filmmaking took a secondary sort of um, place in my life where it was always kind of a primary thing. Right. Um, and I think I'm still probably there, you know, where I would say surely relationships are more important than achievements, you know, yeah. but also that like, if somehow my career and my filmmaking begins to disrupt um, the interpersonal relationships I have that are really essential for me, then I need to pause that and um, ensure yeah. that my my community, my relationships, um, you know, are healthy. Yeah, totally, man. What's something that you learned from um, Inarazi? Like, what, give me something that you your experience with him. Obviously, from you, you said early on, he kind of contacted you, but I know you did a World Unseen and stuff like yeah. that. But what was it like working with him? Yeah. One thing is I always pronounce his last name wrong. And I think I do it on purpose. Is, did I say it wrong? No, you said it right. I always say it wrong. What do you, how do you say it? Inaratu. Inaritu, you got it. Yeah. That's it. Is. it. <laughs> so I'm always corrected. I think I do it on purpose. Inaritu. Just to take him down a notch. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those sweeps. Yeah, yeah, one of those sweeps, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's why he liked me too. When we hang out or in conversation, I think there were a lot of yes men around him. Sure. And I would just be like really frank. Yeah. Even like giving comments on Revenant before it was finished and it opened up, which was crazy because I I think, you know, it's a weird thing with fame. I've been around so much of it. I, my my heart actually breaks for people that are like uber famous. Mm. I don't don't feel like, uh, 
like I'm, I'm uh, in any kind of trance when I'm in their presence. It's all, almost like, oh gosh, totally. <laughs> uh, what a burden. Yeah. Um, sometimes what a curse. You know, I've tasted a little bit of that myself, but um, I think I think they crave real feedback, mm-hmm. real real conversation, and I think because I maybe earned a little bit of that bit of that with him, I remember him turning to me before the revenant was finished and they're about ready to head to argentina to finish the film and alejandro asked me say ellie how do, how do you think that we should finish the film and i said what do you mean i, I read the script i know how it finishes you just know what do you think and again back to this very non-neurotypical divergent way of thinking very intuitive way things kind of come up out of my mouth yeah um and i remember i'd interviewed arthur Redcloud, the medicine man in the film out in texas and right. arthur was like first time actor he i think he was like a driving gasoline trucks for a living and alejandro just plucked him out of nowhere and i remember asking him i said what, do you, what is the film about like what's the core through line and arthur was like oh revenge doesn't belong to man it belongs to god mm. and i'm like wow it's beautiful and alejandro when alejandro asked me i knew alejandro's methodology Alejandro is a very, very curious person and always asking questions to everyone in the room. I think even like the waiter or the waitress, like he's very interested. And I remember, um, I'm like, well, Arthur said the point of the film, maybe the way to end it would be, you know, landing on this idea that revenge doesn't belong to man, it belongs to God. And I remember Alejandro going, interesting. And um, how was it originally written? Do you remember? I don't want to say because that script was like super confidential. Um, and I, I might even get in trouble for saying this, but I, I'll tell you how I got, <laughs> I, I approached it with Alejandro, but uh, we were at the friends and family viewing after they'd gone to Argentina and finished the film. It yeah. was their f- sort of best cut putting forward to everyone. And I was with my wife and I'm like, I wonder how he finished it. And at the very end, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is like holding Tom Hardy's neck and then he like turns to the camera and says you know revenge doesn't belong to man yeah it belongs to god wow you know and afterwards i was walking out in the paparazzi and everyone was like swarming alejandro and i was just trying not to like you know be another thirst thirsty individual right yeah and he ran towards me and grabbed me he's like oh, did it work do you think it worked <laughs> you know and i said yeah but you got to give arthur a writing credit now because yeah. you know and he's like oh i know i know i just it was just so perfect and what I realized, it's a long way of saying what I realized is even Alejandro, you might believe that he is Fincher-esque in his mastery, mm. but comes from a, from almost like a, a more Malik way, you know, where I think he has the, the very strong vision in place, but allows for so much spaciousness of exploration at the 11th hour. Yeah you know, and is willing, is willing to actually entrust the normal layman, you know, the like, the little like C minus kid that's like in his periphery with an idea that might actually like um, be better than his idea. And yeah. that, and for me, that was an immense um, expression of like humility and uh, a practice of curiosity that right. like inspired me. Just to go back to, a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, I almost feel like that's it, man. Mm. I don't know if I can really articulate this, but what we were talking about, sort of the where the universe feels like it just kind of creates something. I wonder if that's it mm. or some part of it, you know, where it's like not thinking that you are 
sort of the God of the thing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like letting it sort of create itself through the, like through the people and the energy around you. But as directors, it's like what we're told, we're told kind of the opposite a little bit through repetition that you need to have the answers. What are we doing here? What are we doing there? Yeah. I think, and I think it's both and I think it's co-creation. You know, I think it's doing your part, you know, showing up, being in the details as we were talking about earlier, you know, absolutely giving it your all and in some ways staying out of the expectation, the expectation of, um, or staying out of the results in a certain way and being open to where that goes and also being surprised by where that goes and being open to changing course. I think there's something in that symbiotic dance. I I mean, I I can remember countless experiences in my own films where I remember Chase Irvin and I were doing this uh, film, um, Breathing Underwater together. It was was a short, but like I could not figure out how to end the film. And I remember- It's like the family in the background. Yeah, and and Chase, I was like, God, how do I end this? I just need a more- concretized symbolic metaphoric way of expressing death and rebirth and the young young girl kind of comes over in the rose bush and chase just starts filming her and she picks up like a dead bird yeah out of the out of the out of the rose bushes and she just walks it over to the grandfather in the scene and he looks at it and chase is filming this thing and they they both choose to throw that dead bird over the cliff and there's no way I could have yep. figured that out. Yeah. And yet, like it was. And you're like, shooting on film and stuff. I'm too. shooting on film. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, I'm like, oh my gosh, was this moment written in time? Yeah. Am I just showing up for this? <laughs> Is it like I? It's a very crazy, out of the box, um, synchronistic interplay. It is sort of like you're you're you, the way that you could maybe justify things. It's like I'm going to attempt to create situations yeah. for things to surprise me. I think so. You know what I mean? I think so. Which is very hard, especially in the commercial world. That's right. I do want to ask you that. Like, How do you keep that same intentionality or sort of randomness or you know, finding universal synchronicities like in the commercial space? It's, I would say it's much less, much less of a opportunity there. Sure. But, but did I feel like when yeah. I see your commercial work, it, f- it like a hundred percent feels like not, maybe not a passion project, obviously, but yeah. like, it feels like you, it feels like the way that you're, it doesn't feel like, Oh, El- that's, there's Elliot doing a Nike thing. <laughs> you know, it feels like, Oh, that's kind of an Elliot film. You know? Yeah. I and think this I- brand got lucky to like do this thing with him. You know what I'm saying? I, I think I, I roll into the experiences in a very like almost gestalt, um, uh, like method directing way where I'm dis- destabilizing everything. Sure. Even though there's a plan and I've spoken about it with a cinematographer and there's been an animatic and everyone understands the way it's going to go. I think the essence of what I'm creating and the way I'm developing relationships with cast or in any given moment, um, there's this sense that suddenly everything's happening yeah. Everyone is outside of their personas they've brought in and things are being captured and no one like really realizes it. Right. And then suddenly, you know, it's that single take that fits in perfectly right. for a 30 or something, you know? Um, 
Has it ever, without naming names, has it ever not worked out with a group of people or an agency or, or a brand or something? Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, and I think I've had to become better at clarifying process. Yeah. I think when I was young, I just expected people to give free reign to that kind of... Um, right. But now, you know, like in a casting session, I don't work with an individual at a time. I'll bring 10 people in at a time and I'll actually workshop something that's almost like, you could call it like a coaching exercise or like a gestalt therapy session yeah, yeah. where I'm, I'm creating chaos and destabilizing the entire room and then watching the way everyone is responding in their small nuanced ways to figure out like what I can actually work with. Yeah, I see. It's almost like you're not even casting for the role you're casting for a collaboration almost. Yeah. And, and again, because commercial making is, is primarily visual, what I'm looking for is the essence of someone. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they going to show up in my set and stiffen up and, yeah. and suddenly become, right. you know, someone that sees the cameras that knows the jig and now they're acting plays to the light. Yeah. Or are they going to remain imperfect and vulnerable and a little bit scared and a little bit curious? Um, and I think what I'm always looking for is the rigidity in someone. Yeah. And I usually stray away from the rigidity of someone, uh, if, uh, an actor or actress, if they're, if they're, um, I can feel it. Like I try, I try to like talk about their, their diarrhea experience in the yeah. bathroom, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and to see if like, if they yeah. laugh about it or where they yeah, go right, with right, it. Right, right. But if they're taking it very serious or there's something there that's, I'm like, ah, this is going to be difficult. Um, to play with them. Yeah. Uh, no, that's a good point. Yeah. When are we going to see a feature from you, man? Yeah. I wrote a screenplay. So I'm like, um, I wrote the screenplay. It's like low budge, probably like 250,000. I love that. By yeah. The way. Yeah. I, it's hard. To, you would be surprised. And I know you, you, you probably talked to a number of commercial directors who work on, high level sets yeah where it's like an intense amount of money for a short amount of days that can't even think about making a movie for two hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars yeah you know what i mean for, it's like so hard to them to even comprehend yeah but i love that you're doing that yeah i think i think honestly if i ever do features it'll be the only way i want to make them i love that so much yeah because um what i can say is that when i was writing this screenplay it's a true story and what had ended up happening, again, this is very divergent, a divergent way of making film, but I was taking real stories that I was very close to, writing them into a singular story. And then what I'll start doing is probably working in a very, very small, like with a very small doc crew. Yeah. Um, but it is narrative, right? Like it is it's narrative. Of, yeah. And okay. I think if you were to watch it, uh, the, the blur between fiction and, and reality will, you know, will be... Uh, impossible to decipher you yeah know? i love that too. yeah um you know that, that was last minutes with odin that's i i did this psa with benjamin Loeb. these two psas were they're full docs but i wrote both of the films and use actors it's for childhood trauma mm -hmm. you know everyone in my circle were like oh my god that's the most amazing documentary i've ever seen N no one realized it was completely fictional you know um which one was that chad and unique that's what the name of the films are and they're like six minute shorts. Um, is it, is Chad the one where, he, it's not the one where he meets like his high school coach. Yes, that's the one. Are you, t hold on. That was like 
scripted? Completely scripted. Scripted. I, I wrote that as a, as a, as a short film. Dude, yeah. I feel like you're playing with my fucking mind. Right <laughs> I know. I know. And I love, and that's, that's I watch that thing all the time. Wow. And I'm like, just wow. bawling my eyes out. Yeah. Chad was a beloved friend of mine for a while. He was an actor in something I had originally done. I said, Chad, I know you have some of this trauma in your own life that you're trying to work through with your, your past. Here's this PSA I want to create. Would you mind workshopping, you know? And, um, and so I presented the script Dude, to the that's agent. That's interesting. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just still trying to grasp my mind. <laughs> because I mean, what was the, um, you would never know. Right. You would. And I, obviously that was the goal. Right. Golly. Like I would still call it a documentary. Almost. Yeah. There's like I, no part of me that would be like, yeah, that's, that's scripted. Yeah. And I would say in that, in that situation, I see myself as a writer, you know? Wow, dude. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Elliot. I always feel like I can, I leave a little bit lifted up. Lifted? Know, oh, good. For sure. So I appreciate you sitting down with us and was this fun for you? Hopefully it was fun. Like I said, brother, you, uh, more than the conversation, your presence is a, is a healing presence and just being able to be with you, I know you're working, but, um, you know, it's a real gift. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Next time on the Music Bed Podcast, we sit down with director and visual artist, Jared Malik Royal. We're off schedule by like 30 minutes and ah, it's all going to fall apart. And then you just can look at them after you've been like, I just ran up a mountain carrying a, a log on my back, being chased by wolves. <laughs> and it's going to be okay. We're going to make it. Yeah. <laughs>